We invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue our series that we've been doing on Sunday night. We're just doing it a few hours early today. In 1 Timothy, Paul's first epistle to the younger preacher, Timothy. And there is so much to encourage us, so much to strengthen us from reading these inspired words of the Apostle Paul to the young man whom he loved so much and in whom he had so much confidence. And that confidence is expressed in statement after statement, as we shall see in the verses we'll look at this afternoon, as we look at verses 18 through 20 and conclude the first chapter of of 1 Timothy. Of course, when you go back to the beginning of this epistle, you realize, of course, and reminded that Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, not on his own doing or something he presumed to take upon himself, the apostleship, but the commandment of God itself was involved. As he received the revelation from God himself, he was not one whit behind any of the other apostles. And he writes to Timothy, a true son, as the New King James translates it, we'll talk more about that word in just a moment, a true son in the faith, that is, Christianity. The faith is referred to again in the verses at which we'll look in just a moment. In verse 17, the last verse we studied last time, the Apostle Paul just seemed to burst into an expression of praise as he contemplated, as he contemplated the, the wonderful redemption that Jesus brought to Mankind. Back in verse 15, when he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And then he recounted the fact that he had done so much, obviously, and recall the fact that he had done so much that was contrary, clearly, to the cause of Christ, and yet that God showed mercy to him through Jesus Christ, in allowing him to have an opportunity to turn from his mission of persecution and ultimately become persecuted himself for the very cause he had once persecuted. And he said, my conversion, since I was such an enemy of God, since I was such an enemy of Christ and the church of Christ, my conversion and the fact that I could receive mercy and have opportunity to turn from my sin and become a Christian and this to become even an apostle of Christ is a pattern. It's a pattern to all those, he said, who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, as we stressed last time, Paul is saying, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how long you have lived in sin. If you are truly willing to come out of that sin, turn from that sin, and meet the conditions set forth by the one who came into this world to save sinners, that is Jesus Christ, those sins can be blotted out forevermore. And they will never meet you again in the judgment. What a blessing redemption is. What a blessing the blood of Christ is that cleanses us from our sins. And Paul reminds us that even he as the chief of sinners, as he characterized himself, could be forgiven of actually consenting to the death of those who were Christians. And so it is an important passage that we looked at last time, and that's what led to the expression of praise with which he burst forth in verse 17, as it were, saying, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now we're to verse 18, the text at which we'll look tonight through verse 20. These, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's look at those three verses. And I don't know how Bobby does this, but we've just sung the haven of rest, and we're getting ready to talk about shipwreck in a few minutes, and so the song just fits beautifully. If he researched that, he's thorough in his research, I guarantee you. But I appreciate the fact that that song does tie into the fact that we are on a a journey, sailing, as it were, on life's stormy seas at times, and yes, it is vitally important that we not make shipwreck of our faith. But look first at verse 18. This charge, Paul writes, I commit to you. The word charge here is a word that we should not overlook. In Paul's letters to Timothy, both First and Second Timothy, he uses the word that is most often translated uh, charge, uh, at least once it's translated urge, but it's the same word in the original over at 1 Timothy 6.13, I urge you in the sight of God. It's the same word in the original. And the idea is truly a command. And in the secular realm, the word was often used in a military connotation. In other words, it was a command given from a superior to uh, an inferior. Now, obviously, Paul valued Timothy as as an equal in terms of the blessings they enjoyed in Christ. But nonetheless, he was older in the faith. He was an apostle. Timothy was not. And the term uh, charge here or command that has a military connotation in the secular realm really here also has that same kind of connotation because Paul very quickly in verse 18 is going to get to the metaphor of Warfare, a military metaphor that Paul used quite often in his writings. He'll use it again in these epistles to, uh, to Timothy, as a matter of fact. When you look over at 2 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Again, the military metaphor is used by Paul to Timothy. Go on to verse 4 of 2 Timothy 2. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And as you well know, if you're a Christian tonight, the, the, uh, the figure is often used in the New Testament that we are, uh, we are Christian soldiers. The old hymn, Onward Christian uh, soldiers is uh, certainly not without its scriptural basis in terms of the theme or the idea of that song coming from the metaphor militarily that is used so often by the Apostle Paul uh, especially. And so he says, I am charging you. I am commanding you. This is a command. And it's seven times that we find that same word used in the two epistles that he writes to Timothy. That tells us that there is something that is absolutely concrete that is absolutely essential that we do not deviate from, and that is the clear and pure doctrine of Christ. This charge I commit. The word commit there is a banking term, and it indicates making a deposit. I am tr- I'm entrusting you, Timothy, 
with this charge or with this command. I have confidence in you that you will carry it out. And so I am making this charge a commitment. I'm making this deposit, as it were, with you, son Timothy. Now, we mentioned that word son back in verse 2 of chapter 1 when we were reviewing a moment ago. The New King James translates it son. The American Standard translates the word son as child. And actually, that is uh, the more literal translation, the word child. And it's interesting because there is a word in the original for son that is not used here, and there's a word in the original for child, a more generic term that can be either a male child or a female child. And that's the term that is used by Paul both in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2 and here in 1 Timothy uh, 18, uh, 1 verse 18. He uses literally the word child. Why is that significant? Well, remember that it has been generally concluded that Paul was responsible for converting Timothy. But this is further proof that that is exactly what happened. Why? Because Vines in his expository dictionary of the New Testament tells us that the word child carries with it more the idea of the relationship to birth. Whereas the word for son carries more the relationship of the dignity and the character of that relationship. So Paul specifically uses the word child, which has more of a relationship to birth. Why would that be significant in this case? Was Paul saying that I'm your father physically? I'm the one that is responsible for your birth and that I begat you? Of course not. Paul never married. What he is saying, though, is you're my child. And he used that word, it seems, deliberately to denote the very tender and special relationship that they had with one another. I did give you birth. I did give birth to you. That is, I begot you through the gospel. And I'm the one that taught you that gospel. And when you were born of water and the Spirit and came forth as a child of God, I had a part in that birth. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, picture that the word child especially conveys as Paul uses that word child in verse 2 of this chapter and also here in verse 18. But now notice something else in verse 18. This charge I commit, I'm making a deposit with you, Timothy, my child, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that you by them, or that by them you may wage the good warfare. What kind of prophecies does Paul refer to here? Well, we're not absolutely certain, but it does appear that there were perhaps, it seems quite likely, New Testament prophets. Remember, Agabus was a prophet in the New Testament who foretold the famine that was uh, coming, etc. There were New Testament prophets, obviously, who had the ability to to make predictions, etc., to foretell. It may very well be that it was one of these or more of these New Testament prophets who had prophesied something about this young man, Timothy, and the fact that he would be indeed a faithful companion ultimately to Paul, that he would be faithful in his charge and carrying out that charge. When you go back to Acts chapter 16, in the second missionary journey, and it's believed, remember we said that Paul converted Timothy on the first missionary journey when he and Barnabas went on that first journey. But now Paul and Silas come back on the second missionary journey and look at Acts 16.1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there. Why was he a disciple? Because he had been converted on the first missionary journey, quite likely. 
Uh, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Now notice verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And so there were those, obviously, who spoke well of him and perhaps had said, whether by prophetic uh, utterance or, or, or not, just by observation, we believe this man is going to be a great man of God. We believe this man is going to develop further into a great uh, servant of God. Now, in Acts chapter 13, when you want to think about New Testament prophets and the possibility that that's what we're reading about here in 1 Timothy 1.18, in the church that was at Antioch, Acts 13, verse 1, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit had a part in selecting Barnabas and Saul for that first missionary journey. So it may very well be that the prophecies to which Paul makes reference here in verse 18 were some uh, utterances given by some of these New Testament prophets concerning Timothy and that they had expressed, even by the Holy Spirit, uh, the fact that these uh, events would come to pass, that he would ultimately join uh, Paul. And uh, then there was the perhaps non-inspired encouragement, obviously, of his brethren, Acts 16, 2. The point, though, that Paul seems to be making here is that he's using these prophecies, these utterances, to motivate Timothy even more and to say to him, listen, there are a lot of brethren who are counting on you, Timothy, There are a lot of people who have a great deal of confidence in you. And yes, as we've said, even prophetic utterances may have been given about your future and the potential you have and what you can achieve and hopefully what you will achieve. Obviously, it wouldn't be against Timothy's free will. He'd have to exercise his free will in carrying those things out. But the point is, he seems to be encouraging him. I'm charging you. I'm committing to you, my child, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them... In other words, think about those things, Timothy, that have been said about you. Think about the expectations that are there for you. And let those expectations and let those prophetic utterances motivate you, keep you going, as it were, and give you added encouragement to wage the good warfare. Paul was obviously very concerned at the time he wrote this epistle about what was coming. You remember over in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1 beginning. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Yes, that's a prophetic utterance by Paul, an inspired utterance about uh, times far distant as well, though, as times that began to occur Uh, in terms of persecution, not long after Paul penned those words. Because there's only a period of, say, five years or so between the writing of 1 Timothy and the writing of 2 Timothy. And where was Paul when he wrote 2 Timothy some five years later? He was about to die. He was about to go before Nero for the second time. The first time he was released. After writing 1 Timothy, he had anticipated a release, and the indication is that he was released from prison initially, the first imprisonment, but the second imprisonment, no. Why? Because Nero's persecution began to accelerate. This epistle was written prior to the acceleration of that persecution by the emperor Nero. And so 
But Paul certainly knows that things are not looking good and positive on the horizon and that it is going to require a tremendous amount of courage, commitment, and faith to wage the good warfare. But think about where we are today. We don't know what is on the horizon, as we have said before, in terms of any physical persecution. But there are Christians, true New Testament Christians, who are being persecuted physically in various parts of the world. And those who have died, those who have died. We've talked about some in Nigeria and other places that have have actually lost their lives in our lifetime, in fact, in recent months. And so we don't know what's on the horizon, maybe not in the United States, no, but this book wasn't written for people in the United States alone. It was written to encourage those, perhaps in Nigeria, who were able to gain courage and confidence from these words, perhaps even days, if not moments, before they did die and died in faith because of the encouragement of these inspired words. But all of us, Wherever we are, will at some point in time, and we've said this often, we will encounter persecution of some kind. No question about it. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, to which we will come, Lord willing, eventually in our study, wrote what in verse 12? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, yes. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Different forms of persecution to different degrees. But it will come if we're doing what we should be doing. If we're living as we should be living. Therefore, the point is... We all need to be prepared to wage the warfare that will inevitably come to us from Satan. An external warfare against those who would teach false doctrine, as Hymenaeus and Alexander are mentioned in verse 20 here. That's the external threat. Those who are teaching contrary to the doctrine of Christ, even at times in the church today. And then there's the internal warfare that is within all of us, that we must fight in order to hold on to faith and a good conscience, as verse 19 will remind us in just a moment. But the warfare is there nonetheless, and we have to be prepared to wage that warfare. Have you seen, and I'm sure you have many times, videos, pictures, still pictures or videos of our soldiers currently who are on the battlefield, who are in harm's way, and how they are dressed. They're not dressed in Hawaiian uh, flowery shirts and khakis as they go about their business. They are armed to the hilt. They're armed to the hilt. Why? Because they understand, they understand the battle, the war, and the potential battles that they will have to fight as a part of that war. But what about the Christian and Paul's military metaphors that he uses, as we mentioned so many times? What about Ephesians 6, the same writer, the Apostle Paul, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Can you picture a soldier being stationed in 
some far distant land now where there are threats to their very lives? Can you picture them leaving their camp, their place of dwelling in the morning, their tent, whatever, and getting, you know, halfway a mile or two away and say, I forgot my weapon. And I didn't even put on my, my vest. What am I doing? No, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. What about us in the Christian warfare? What about us as we go out day by day without our weapon, or should we? Should we not be well prepared and well trained with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? That's Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. Put on the whole armor of God, and then Paul enumerates the various pieces of that armor and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the shield of faith, which will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We've got to be prepared to wage the good warfare. And that's what Paul writes to Timothy, but it's what he writes to us as he writes to Timothy. Wage the good warfare. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, he tells you, in verse 19, having faith and a good conscience. Having is the idea of grasping something and holding on for dear life, as it were. It's a, it's a present participle that means just keep on holding on. Don't you ever even, don't ever release your grip for a moment on faith and a good conscience. And the two are tied together. I think faith in the first use of it here in verse 19 is one's personal faith, one's personal belief. Having faith and a good conscience, which is vitally important, of course, a good conscience because a conscience will sit in judgment of our actions as to whether those actions are right or wrong. But it's important that the conscience be tied to what? A faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. So we have to make sure that our faith is intact and that our faith comes from the Word of God and then our conscience must continue to guide us in doing those things that are in keeping with this Word. Can a conscience be mistrained? Well, of course it can. The Apostle Paul himself in Acts 23, 1 said, I've lived in all good conscience before God. Until this day, he lived in good conscience when he was consenting to the death of Christians. What was his problem? His faith. His faith was wrong. His faith was not based upon the Word of God. It was based upon a law that had been abrogated, had been fulfilled and nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. And so his faith didn't come by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, meaning the New Testament. That's why it's vitally important that we spend time with the Word of God so that we can develop a conscience that is properly trained and will sit in proper judgment upon our actions and upon our attitudes and upon our words. But some, Paul says, have rejected that conscience. And, of course, to reject the conscience and the faith is tied to it, which some have rejected, but notice concerning what? The faith. The first use of faith in verse 19 is having faith, I believe belief, personal faith, based upon the Word of God, and a good conscience. But some have rejected faith and a conscience concerning what? 
the faith have suffered shipwreck. Now the words the faith tell us he's talking about what? The system of faith. He's now talking about Christianity. Some have abandoned Christianity. Some have turned their backs upon the faith. Is the faith used uh, to indicate Christianity anywhere else? Of course it is, isn't it? Galatians 3.23, before faith came, we were under war and under the law. That is the system of faith. Jude says, I wrote to tell you to contend earnestly for what? The faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The faith is the system of faith. It's Christianity. It's the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And Paul says some have rejected faith and they've fought against their conscience until they have been able to win the battle against their conscience and their conscience no longer condemns them. They've justified the change in terms of what they've done. And because of that, the faith, Christianity, has suffered shipwreck. Suffered shipwreck. Is this not a verse that also tells us that it's entirely possible for one to lose one's salvation, to abandon his salvation once he has truly obtained it? Why, of course it is. And yet there are some who have worked very hard in the denominational realm to try to temper Paul's words here about shipwreck. Listen to one comment from a a man by the name of J.D. White Newport. He says, we're not justified in interpreting, quote, suffered shipwreck, unquote, as though it meant they were lost beyond hope of recovery. St. Paul, as he calls him, himself had suffered shipwreck at least four times when he wrote this and had on each occasion lost everything except himself. Does that give you any indication of where this man's coming from? And I read another quote as well that said the same thing, that when Paul wrote this, and that's true, he had suffered shipwreck four times. And he'd lost everything except himself. What are these denominational commentators saying? I think what they're saying is that you can lose everything you've done in living the Christian life, and it can all wind up at the judgment being for naught, but you can still save yourself even though you were wrong. It's like we talked about not long ago in 1 Corinthians three eleven through 15. If any man's work which he has done abides, that is, his converts. But some have misinterpreted that passage to say that means that even though you have done wrong and been sincerely wrong all of your life, because you were sincere when you stand before God, God's going to excuse you and save you even though everything you did was contrary to his will. And that's really the thrust of what this statement is just saying. No, they weren't lost behind hope of recovery if they repented. But what I get from his statement and another I read is that he lost everything when he was shipwrecked except himself. Is that what Paul is saying here? That you can suffer shipwreck of the faith, you can abandon Christianity and lose everything you've done in living the Christian life, but it doesn't matter whether you repent or not, you'll still barely be saved yourself. No, shipwreck is shipwreck, isn't it? And then he specifically mentioned some. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That same expression, delivering to Satan, is used in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. And it simply indicates, I believe, discipline, church discipline, as we've talked about it on more than one occasion here. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he said, deliver that man who was living in fornication to Satan, that is, Discipline him. 
in the hopes that the flesh will be destroyed, his fleshly activity, and that he'll come home. And indeed, he did. Second Corinthians indicates he did. Therefore, I take this to be the same meaning here, that at some point he had guided the brethren Paul had in withdrawing fellowship from Hymenaeus and Alexander. In the case of the man in 1 Corinthians, he came home. But when we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 17, Hymenaeus is mentioned again. This is some four or five years later, and evidently he had not come home, may never have. Their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. Not only had Hymenaeus not repented in the few years that followed this statement in verse 20 that we just looked at, but he was continuing to overthrow the faith of others. What a sobering and tragic condemnation that is. And so, indeed, this passage and others tell us that, indeed, discipline is necessary and its very purpose is that men learn not to blaspheme or that the Spirit may be saved in the final day of judgment as is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. And so we conclude chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Powerful verses on a charge that not only was committed to Timothy, but a charge that is committed to every one of us who is a child of God this afternoon. And that is that we hold on to faith and a good conscience properly trained so that the faith which we have embraced does not suffer shipwreck. If you have not become a part of the faith, there's only one way to do that. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you've done those things and have become a Christian, but you know this afternoon that you have made shipwreck of your faith, there is hope for recovery as long as you're willing to come home in repentance. As we stand to sing, will you come?